This show is for everyone working at the coalface. Digital. Business. Marketing. Social. This is At The Coalface with your host, Jason Greenwood. Thank you very much for for joining us today. Uh, you know, I think I think the audience for at the Coalface is really going to enjoy hearing from you today. Uh, so, Christian, um, I'll I'll let you introduce yourself uh, and I'll just the, maybe the little the short version of the Baymard story. So, I'll I'll introduce you um, just purely by name. So, um, Christian Holst from the CEO of Baymard Research out of Denmark. And uh, so thank you for coming onto the show with us and, and I'll hand it over to you to do a brief intro and then we can get into a few uh, few question and answers. Um, well, thank you for the uh, introduction, Jason. Um, so um, my name is Christian Holst and I am the research director and co-founder uh, of the Baymard Institute. Uh, and what we have been doing at Baymard uh, for the past almost eight years now is conducting large scale e-commerce usability studies. Uh, so they're not client specific, uh, but it's large studies where we typically devote one or two years to a specific uh, topic of UX within e-commerce. So we typically devote one or two years testing only checkout flows with a lot of different users at a lot of uh, different websites, a very broad range, um, ranging from the local uh, small uh, shoe store to uh, Walmart and Macy's and uh, and and you name it. Um, and based on these large-scale e-commerce usability studies, all of those test findings, we sort of um, uh, aggregate them and detect the pattern in user behaviors which are consistent across websites to see are there any kind of design patterns that we can see consistently perform poorly or consistently perform well. And all of those findings we aggregate into our uh, generic um, large-scale uh, e-commerce studies, which we then publish. Uh, and we have been doing so for the past seven years. Uh, and what we also do is that we then uh, benchmark uh, typically the top 50 crossing U.S. e-commerce sites. And we're, we're then uh, benchmarking the top 50 uh, grossing U.S. e-commerce uh, sites to see how they comply with uh, with these findings. Um, and basically, uh, the point of, of doing this is to see are there any general missed opportunities in the industry, but also to find uh, best practices. Uh, and when we're not doing these large-scale studies, we are working, uh, doing consultant work for a lot of mainly uh, Fortune 500 uh, e-commerce uh, companies uh, like Nike's, uh, um, Starbucks, um, and, and and various uh, different large uh, U.S. mainly U.S. e-commerce companies. Fantastic! No, that's a, that's a great intro. You know, I followed um, I, I followed Baymard with high levels of interest for probably about six years now, uh, five six years. Uh, so that's what I've always loved about Baymart, and I think you know. You're one of, you know, and I'd love you to speak to uh, whether you think you actually, whether you feel that you've even got competitors in the marketplace, because there's not a lot of companies 
in the world today that are doing what you do in the way that you do it, and certainly none of them stand out, I think. Uh, and in that sense, I think you guys do something very unique in the way that you do what you do. Uh, and I think you add a tremendous amount of value to di the digital sphere, full stop, but specifically to the e-commerce space, because I've worked specifically e-commerce for 15 years. And so for me, being able to tap into that qualitative and quantitative research is, is something that um, is, is something that you can point to with legitimacy when you're talking to a client about what works and what doesn't because you actually have the data to back it up and I really like that about what you guys do. So, so speaking to that, do you guys feel that you really have any competition in your marketplace or do you guys feel like you do things that are so unique that pretty much it's just you, you doing what you do? Um, well, it's, um, it's an interesting question. I don't think there is, uh, as, as you mentioned, there, there, is, there isn't a whole lot uh, of companies doing uh, what we do or research organizations that do what we do. Um, essentially, um, it's sort of with, the same with uh, software development. Uh, you spend years, maybe uh, one or two years uh, with an entire team building a product and then hopefully it sells at the end. Uh, so the business model is um, a bit flipped upside down compared to what people who are normally engaged in large-scale usability testing do because they do consultant work where you're paid almost by the hour or at least for a fixed price project. Uh, so in that sense, it's uh, the business model I don't think is very natural uh, to, to sort of dive into. Um, and well, I, um, yeah, actually, I, I, I don't know why, why there aren't um, uh, more people <laughs> doing what we do. Um, but it's interesting what you mentioned there in, in the beginning about best practices, uh, because there is often this uh, this uh, thinking that uh, large site equals best practice. And what we see when we benchmark is that it's very seldomly the case you can't just copy Amazon or you can't just copy Macy's because they have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, mistakes and parts that, that you simply uh, uh, shouldn't use on, on your own site. They have a unique context, of course, especially if we talk about sites like Amazon, uh, but also simply, and, and I know so because we work with a lot of the large Fortune 500, uh, you think that they have this uh, gigantic uh, team that just knows exactly what's uh, what's going on in every single part of their site. Uh, but when you then start to work with them, it's pretty clear that sometimes the reason why they have this particular design for their filters is because Mike decided so. Mike is somewhere in, in, in the design department, uh, decided so and nobody argued against him. And that's why they have this filtering design, uh, not because they spend um, hours and hours uh, necessarily researching every single bar, bit, bit of, of, of that particular design. Um, so, yeah, that's that's quite interesting. Actually, how we founded uh, Baymart Institute, uh, the other co-founder, Jamie, uh, he worked as a lead developer at a rather large um, uh, agency that did both the design and development work. Uh, and even when working with a large client, and this was seven or eight years ago, uh, he saw that in meetings, um, in design meetings where decisions had to be made about the end user, uh, user interface, um, it was the final decision very often came down to one of three things. Either uh, some designer really loved his idea and convinced everybody else in the room that this is the perfect design. Yeah. Or the boss said, I'm the boss, I'm deciding we go with that version. Yes. Or the client said, I'm the client, I'm paying 
so we go with that version. And very seldomly, again, this was eight years ago, it was somebody said, this is what we see is best for the end user. And that's actually how we, we founded the Baymart Institute. We wanted uh, not the definitive uh, final truth. If we want that, we need large scale uh, client uh, or, or site specific testing. Uh, but we wanted something where we with very high accuracy uh, could uh, have this sort of reference uh, document where we say, okay, so we are down to these uh, three filtering designs in this meeting. Uh, what is the most uh, the, the filtering design that is uh, the most likely to work best for the end user? Can we have any kind of, of research uh, pointing us in a direction for which of these designs we should go with? And that's how, how we, on that idea, we, we founded the Bayman Institute. Great, I love the story. Um, I'm, I, 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 the next question, I guess, really relates to how you view your work. And my question is, do you see your work really as, and the outcomes of your research, really as kind of the baseline MVP starting point for a modern e-commerce website? And then from there, how does things like analytic, analytic outcomes, how do things like conversion rate optimization, ongoing conversion rate optimization work, how does, how does A, B, and M testing, for example, influence the final designs and, for example, if, if a new website is being built and designed and they take really your research findings and they say, okay, we're going to start with that as our minimum viable product, we're going to start that with that as a baseline. And when we get to the prototype stage, we're actually going to put it out to some real user testing. We're going to see how our user group, our customer personas, how they respond to that baseline. And then from there, we're going to tweak, we're going to test, we're going to, we're going to test even before we go to the build phase. Because once you go to the build phase, as you well know, to unwind and unpick any of that work, you know, once you, let's say you go live with a design, you know, and then you start doing A-B testing, you start doing CRO, you start looking at your analytics data, you know, to unpick a lot of that stuff and redesign even pages of a website, whether it be the category page, the product page, the home page, you're starting to get into large bodies of work and you'd obviously much rather do that very early on instead of having to unpick that at a later date. So maybe you can share your thoughts about how you view the starting point of your work as it relates to your customers, both the individual customers as well as the the larger uh, customer base that buys your research papers in bulk, for example. And then how does that fit in with further testing and further enhancement from there? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways uh, that it's, it's currently being used by clients. Um, but um, the earlier in the process, uh, the better. We can also see m more and more of, of, of the uh, consulting and client work that, that we do. Uh, we go in uh, at the very early stages, some, sometimes even at the wireframe stage, to simply uh, audit uh, the UX of, of the wireframes uh, for a particular uh, e-commerce uh, design, uh, simply because it's, uh, as you mentioned, insanely uh, expensive to do changes after uh, development actually have occurred. Um, so, and, and it's interesting because we, in the beginning, uh, when we started, we thought that uh, our primary uh, audience uh, for this research was actually uh, the UX designers uh, and, and UX researchers and, and maybe uh, uh, project managers. Um, and when we start out initially, um, 
we often get a bit of uh, resistance from from uh, from developers to say, oh, it's all this extra work. Uh, but the clients we have uh, for more ongoing work, it's actually the developers that are starting to push uh, uh, push this and, and and get a lot of uh, UX research into the early phases because they can see if we get it into the early phases of the project, they don't have to redo their work half a year later. Uh, so we're actually starting to 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 see quite some traction uh, from from developers uh, to do um, these more research-based uh, designs. Uh, so basically, they don't have to redo their work every uh, six months when we re- then realize uh, that that it wasn't the optimal design. Um, so we often see uh, that that that's the process uh, in terms of of A/B testing and and M testing. Um, and, and how it relates to the research that we do, uh, we see that um, a lot of a, lo- a lot of the the findings and, and and usability guidelines that we end up with uh, are very often extremely flexible in the uh, in the aesthetics and in terms of the fitting the site and design context. Uh, so it's very often just some small nuances that are somewhat restricted in terms of design. Uh, and in that way, we see there is, even when we, you work with something relatively uh, specific, uh, like uh, the, the, the research uh, we did uh, recently, recently published on, on checkouts, uh, where we have roughly 700 pages of, uh, of usability findings uh, across 140 guidelines. So even though you would think, don't all checkouts end up looking the same if they all follow your research? It's, um, I wouldn't say the contrary, but it's, uh, it's it's extremely diverse how this can be implemented, uh, and we often see that uh, that there is a very large uh, um, large amount of freedom in 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 terms of what design patterns and design aesthetics that you actually choose. It's mainly when it comes down to interactions and microcopy that there is a lot of very specific uh, usability guidelines that we have to uh, to follow in order to 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 get a high performing site. Right, that makes sense. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, especially where where a brand has some some fairly, um, I guess, well fleshed out digital brand guidelines. Because when I was working agency side, many companies actually didn't. They had they had overall brand guidelines, but they wouldn't necessarily have digital specific brand guidelines. And so they were actually relying on the digital agency through the website design process to flesh out and actually develop digital brand guidelines um, that they could then use holistically across their all of their digital channels, not just their website. So it's it's uh, it's very interesting to hear you say that. Look, you know, whilst our research does give you a very good starting point, I guess, in terms of some definite do's and definite don'ts, um, how you fit that into your overall uh, brand and how that's presented to the public uh, and to your visitors is is somewhat flexible. So you can still you can still follow and respect those brand guidelines, even if you need to develop them, whilst having that kind of, I guess, best practice, that informed uh, layouts, functionality, interactions, transitions, those types of things. And you can really bring that research and actually layer that on top of your brand guidelines and, and kind of the brand direction that you take as a company. So that's that's a really interesting um, point that you make. 
Um, and, and I guess the next thing that, that I find really fascinating is, is the fact that you emphasize the fact that you do work directly with a certain amount of companies. So I guess I guess I always envisaged Baymart as being mostly devoted to the energies of creating research reports that then can be sold. You know, it's kind of one to a million. Uh, you produce it once and you can sell it potentially to a million companies that need to utilize the research. But it sounds to me like you may have even more of maybe a 50-50 split of the kind of work you do. So you do this holistic, um, I guess, quantitative research, but then you do the qualitative work directly one-on-one -on -one with specific clients. So roughly what kind of breakdown do you have within the business of the direct client work versus, I guess, your, your holistic research work? Um, the holistic large-scale work is roughly 80% of, of, uh, of our time. Uh, and then the last 20% is client work. Um, for a lot of companies, and they don't actually have to be that large, we also have a lot of small niche stores. It's not only Fortune 500. Um, and essentially, uh, we've published around 3,000 pages of, of research, and having somebody at, say, uh, Apple or Macy's read through a 700-page uh, paper just for the checkout alone, and then try to implement that on their own checkout, rather than having us review their current checkout and point out the 20 most uh, obvious uh, suggestions for improvement is often much more cost effective and is a lot faster. Uh, so that's actually often the main reason it's, it's, it's simply more cost effective. Um, and yeah, that's why I we mean, started. I guess it's more time effective Excellent. too, and, and especially if they've got tight design timelines and deadlines, yeah. and, and let's say they're going through a redesign or a refresh phase, a retheming exercise, then obviously speed and time is of the essence for them, both in terms of their internal resource, their external developer resource, etc. So, I mean, I guess if they can get that really well defined and really well refined right from the first step, then that, that does save a tremendous amount of um, rework, not only in the initial prototyping phases, but also once you start, as you say, you know, even right from the wireframe phase, um, whether, you know, and, and I, I see a move and a trend uh, that I find really interesting, and I'd love your thoughts on it. Uh, in our industry, there's definitely a trend towards interactive wireframe or interactive prototyping, rapid prototyping that gets to a high fidelity state very, very fast. I mean, I'm thinking of things like Axure, I'm thinking of things like InVision. So when I think of tools that allow us to get to a high fidelity stage very rapidly without having to have the logic sitting underneath it to actually do the next steps, but you can actually see the transitions, you can test the transitions, you can actually put them out to testing, user testing, very early on at a high fidelity state and see any points of friction pretty early on. And are you seeing a trend in that direction as well? Have you noticed that trend, especially in the last, say, 24 months uh, yeah I'd say maybe even even longer I guess depending slightly on on, on the market uh, but yeah there is uh, there's definitely a trend going towards uh, interactive prototypes which makes makes completely sense um, uh, basically when we work with uh, static wireframes and static designs um, it's difficult to evaluate the full user experience because a lot of it, I would say roughly a third of all our research findings uh, of, of the roughly 450 um, specific usability guidelines that we see consistently to lead to a high-performing e-commerce site, uh, I'd say roughly a third of those are on interactions or something that 
is 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 linked directly to uh, to an interactive part of an interface. Uh, so it's very hard to do the full um, user experience in evaluating the usability pitfalls if you don't have an interactive prototype. Uh, but I think another aspect and why we've seen this change. Uh, so rapidly here recently is due to uh, responsive web design. Uh, so it doesn't make that much sense any longer to do these static compositions because you need to do them statically across different uh, screen devices. And as that have completely exploded over the last two years, uh, the, the breakpoints, uh, then it no longer really makes sense to have these uh, these static prototypes compared to if we can do responsive prototypes. And I think that have also fueled a lot of the uh, traction for these uh, uh, these interactive prototypes. Yeah, that leads really nicely, I guess, into into a question that 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 I wanted to raise, which was, how has the proliferation and absolutely rapid rise of mobile impacted, I guess, the quantity. And, and, and as you say, because responsive is now the default, uh, responsive web design has overtaken separate sites for devices. Uh, you know, and we used to have the M dot model, which, which was very popular for maybe 12 to 18 months. And then we rapidly evolved when Google slapped everybody across the wrist and said, sorry, now we're going to give you, you know, we're going to give you extra rankings if you're mobile responsive. Uh, and we're actually going to modify the results, the order of results based on uh, how your site performs on different devices. And so when we, when we push results to a specific device, we're going to rank people higher that actually perform well on those specific devices and are highly viewable, highly relevant. So how has the, the absolute explosion and, and virtual dominance of mobile now, how has it shaped both your research and how do you think it's shaped design trends? Yes. So actually we have a you can say a, a bit of luxury there in the sense that what we research is how the uh, optimal end user phase is designed or or looks like or how it, it interacts uh, with the user uh, and the underlying technology to serve that uh, for the end user's perspective uh, doesn't matter because the end user don't have a clue on what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, so of course, if we have uh, performance issues, uh, it, it will uh, show uh, pretty heavily in, 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 in the website performance uh, or UX performance. Um, but apart from that, uh, users care extremely little about the underlying technology essentially because they don't understand it. Yeah, absolutely. But has that also impacted the volume of research you have to do simply because now you have to test across so many more devices, you have to test across so many more breakpoints, you actually have to create quote-unquote the best practice for tablet, for mobile handsets, supersized mobile handsets, desktop. So now the sheer volume of research you have to do to create what's called best practice across all these devices, it's just so many, so much more testing you actually have to do and, and so much user research you have to do. Yeah, yeah, that that is 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 much more extensive than it used to be, um, and um, and 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 that's certainly a challenge that that we have worked a bit with, um, and uh, yeah, it, essentially doing doing anything uh, in terms of of, uh, of of the mobile platforms is uh, is a lot more expensive than than it used to be if we want to cover everything. Um, the good thing, so to say, is that. We still need to support or have a good design for the uh, three to four inch, uh, you can say, normal or old smartphones, uh, depending on, uh, uh, on, on on the type of model you have. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess any usability enhancements that you can bring to a really small screen real estate device, anytime you have a little bit more room, I guess the the thing that, that most businesses um, unfortunately can fail at is the sense that when they have that more real estate, they want to pack it with as much information as they can, whether or not it's necessarily going to enhance the user experience. So, uh, and obviously you've got some differences within Europe and North America, um, you know, versus obviously APAC down here. So there definitely are some regionalized differences. So how do you surface some of those regionalized differences in your research or do you kind of to a degree ignore those in favor of a more holistic view and saying okay well in our research because we look effectively globally we're actually seeing the best practice that's going to bring the best user experience to the largest quantity of visitors um, as a low-hanging fruit exercise and then and then we're going to get down to localized sites after that yeah it's um it's quite difficult, the, the localization uh, aspect or internationalization aspect. Um, there are multiple levels. In terms of what we do, um, most of, uh, you can say, the the actual key changes in, in culture and, 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 and just what works locally, um, we do that mainly in the client-specific projects. We don't have that much in our large uh, holistic studies uh, simply because they have to serve a global market. Um, but what we do is that we point out some of the uh, usability issues that often occur. Uh, so we still even see this uh, to this date, but just to give one example, on mobile, you of course want to invoke the numeric keyboard whenever there is a numeric input. Uh, and that works perfectly well. So in the US, uh, you would invoke a numeric keyboard for the zip code input because that's a five or nine digit input. Um, but then the site all of a sudden expands. They could expand to Canada. They could expand to Argentina. They could expand to the UK. And there you can all also have alphanumerical characters in the zip code or in the postal code. And all of a sudden you have a mobile site where none of those international users can actually uh, submit their postal code. And this, you would think, okay, they discover this on day one when they expand, but it's not all uh, uh, postal codes that have alphanumeric uh, characters. This can go on for quite some time, or it could be the formatting for a phone input, which also uh, differs quite uh, significantly from country to country. So there is a lot of uh, small uh, internationalization usability issues, and we focus uh, uh, and, and uncover quite a lot of those in, in our research. Um, but I think within the next, um, I shouldn't get ahead of myself here, but within maybe the next year or year and a half, uh, we will do a study focusing only on uh, uh, the internationalization aspect. One of the areas that um, I've seen that that site designers in particular, because they're artistic people, they, they often they have an artistic bent. And as a result of that, they have an itch they need to scratch artistically. They need to feel that they're doing good work. They need to feel that they're making something attractive. They need to feel, feel like they're, they've left a mark on the design. And that's totally understandable as creatives. That's, that's, their, that's their bent, right? But then you have on the other extreme end of the table, particularly with localization, you have something as simple as a site that does cross-border trade, for example. So they have one site, master site, that serves the entire world. And something as simple as in the checkout, they, by default, they choose the default shipment country, the delivery country, as the local country, their master market. Now, oftentimes, what I've found and, and what I discovered when I was working agency side is that that becomes a real challenge because 
the, the, when, when the customer checks out, they oftentimes don't even see that that has been pre-selected. And so they'll go and they'll put the, the, the country name maybe in the first line of the address or something like that. And so that'll cause address validation to fail. It'll cause the shipment to fail, to, the, the shipping label to not even be able to be generated, and it creates a whole lot of downstream work for customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So there's many, many instances like this where where the standard expectation in a foreign market, the most basic of expectations, can completely ruin, not ruin, but certainly your basic uh, usability stuff can ruin their experience. And it's not something intentional. It's just, it's, just a, it's just the fallout affects those users quite heavily. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you, and I don't think I necessarily have a specific question about this, but I think that your research is going to become increasingly important as companies begin to internationalize and getting, uh, you know, because the reality is you have a fantastic research framework. Now that is something that equally can be applied to any market and I think that's a really critical factor because most agencies and most designers they don't have a framework that they can then go and internationalize their site against. So I think by bringing a standard to your research and being able to apply that market by market and have consistency in the way that you gather the data, in the way that you process and present that data, I think that is going to help the internationalization effort hugely, but obviously it puts a huge burden on you to continue to churn out the work on a localized basis. We actually did a study very recently uh, where we saw a lot of these internationalization issues um, simply because uh, the country wasn't placed at the top. So by default, it uh, the site, uh, exactly what, what you mentioned, I guess I can name the site here, it, it was Amazon UK. Mm -hmm. uh, and by default, it picked UK as the shipping country, even though um, uh, the users tested came from a different European country. Uh, and as a consequence, they were presented by default with a UK address form with a country placed at the bottom, which is... I guess from print media, it's logical to have the country placed at the bottom. Uh, but the issue is that in UK, they have something called a county, which or a province that you call it in other areas or a region that you call it in other areas. Uh, but um, these users that we tested uh, weren't from a country where they had counties. Uh, so they misread county as country. It's just uh, an army. Yeah. So they misread that and then they put their country name in that field called county uh, and messed it up completely. I think we had almost 20% uh, of those users ending up uh, placing false orders where they actually in the county wrote their country and then overlooked uh, the pre-selected country UK and ended up placing an invalid order. Yeah, it can be an absolute nightmare. And I mean, I guess, uh, you know, a worst case scenario on the backside of that is to have a form form field or form layout that does change when someone changes their country, for example. So let's say, let's say you have an adaptable form that does actually adapt by country. But if it's the last field, then effectively what can happen is when they actually select their country, then either it can er erase everything they've entered already, or it can so substantially change the form fields that they've actually got to repeat a lot of work and you introduce a tremendous amount of friction at checkout. Out. So, first of all, how do you do your testing across as many devices as possible? And then secondarily, let's get into, I, I guess, a little bit of how you cope with that localization and how you recommend your clients cope with internationalization um, in terms of detecting inbound users and where they come from. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of different questions here. Uh, I guess the... Um, 
the way we work with uh, with different devices it changes a bit uh, whether it's client work or whether it's our large scale studies um, but a recommendation i have is that if you do usability testing um, in lab testing where you actually have users uh, come to your lab or your office um, i recommend not using a uh, a test device that you hand them, but allowing them to bring and use their own device. It's it's a hassle to record it uh, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, we see that it 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 really brings a lot of of of, of nuances um, uh, to it, and it, it's also less of a bias because the user is completely used to their own device uh, and not necessarily your test device. Uh, and that's a good way to at least. Uh, uh, detect some of, of the differences that there may be. Um, and also actually another tip, uh, just going slightly off topic there, is that um, if you don't strictly need a lab, if you don't need a lot of eye tracking uh, equipment when you run usability tests, uh, then something that we do from time to time that works extremely well is don't ask the users to come to your office or to your lab, but go to their location. So would you just, for example, just take a video camera, just a standard video camera, put it on a tripod, watch them as they interact with their with their device in their own home. Is that typically how you would do it? You just physically record them interacting with that given website on their own device? Uh, yes, that that's our preferred method. Um, and of course, depending on whether it's mobile or desktop or what type of device they have, uh, screen recording is sometimes built in. Uh, which it often is on desktop devices. So there we don't have to sort of pre-screen or ask them to install any software. It's already uh, there, for instance, on a Mac, uh, uh, just uh, using the built-in uh, screen recording. What do you think of um, uh, tools such as Clicktail, Crazy Egg, tools like that? So uh, basically user session recording that's actually driven by JavaScript that's embedded on the site, things like that. What, what do you think of those types of tools? I think they are, those kind of tools are truly fantastic and it helps to uncover uh, some issues um, so uncover some some usability issues and, and UX issues. Um, you can say mm, the danger or is, is is really in how you actually use them uh, because it's the same when with with all of the web statistic platforms. There is endless and and mountains and mountains of data, uh, and you can. I guess most have tried this a couple of times that you go into your web statistic platform and then you click around and you. And, and, and everything is interesting. All the data you see, uh, there's some interesting data point there. And all of a sudden, you've clicked around for three or four hours, and you haven't actually learned anything which is actionable. Uh, so uh, you have gathered a lot of interesting um, user insights. But how should we change our site? Uh, that can often be difficult. And, 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 uh, and a lot of the, uh, the mouse gaze uh, analytics uh, can be good if you have if you know there is a particular part of, of the interface that you suspect is underperforming, then they can be very powerful when you know sort of where to look or what to look for. Or they can be very helpful in, in providing some answers. Uh, so I think it's um, it's a part of the toolbox um, and, and you have to combine it uh, with other pieces of data. And, and we often uh, um, combine uh, those tools and other web statistics in, in general um, with, with the research that we have when we do client work. Uh, so 
pointing out, okay, we know that this filtering design uh, from our research uh, often creates performance issues, and then go into those kind of uh, uh, tools to verify, okay, so we do we actually see a high um, hesitation times in our mouse-based heat maps uh, around this particular uh, part of the interface, or do we see a high drop-off rate? Um, now, in the interest of time, I really appreciate you taking so much time. I've, I've taken a little bit longer than what I expected, and maybe even what you expected, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, if we were to kind of, by way of, of, of wrapping things up, um, two, two final questions for you. One is, I know you come from a heavy science background, I know you come from a product development background. How do you think that, um, I guess, background has shaped and influenced the direction that Baymart has taken as a business, and how has it helped you to develop the business because of your background and because of your history? And then secondarily, uh, if someone was starting out on a fresh site design today, what are your, kind of your top two or three tips that you would recommend that they do as their first steps to get the very, very best execution out of a, out of a fresh design for a site? Um, in terms of, of how my background sort of uh, shaped what we do at Baymart, uh, I think it's actually uh, the combination of my background and the other co-founder Jamie's uh, background, uh, because my background is within usability research, uh, and his background is within development. So he was uh, working as a lead developer. Uh, so what we tried was to merge these two, uh, because there is a lot of there is, 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 is a lot of fantastic uh, um, pieces of off, often free, uh, very high quality research coming out of universities uh, on usability and user behavior, but it's very seldomly uh, actionable and applicable. Uh, and that was kind of what we're aiming for uh, at, at Baymark. We say uh, actionable research is sort of a, a tagline that we, we created early on um, um, because we we want the academic rigor in what we do, and that's kind of uh, my side. Um, uh, but at the same time, we want something which is is actionable, where you can actually, after having read three just uh, three pages in a research report, you know, okay, so this is uh, the the ten knobs that I can turn on in order to make my interface uh, better and my user experience better and make my site high, uh, better performing. And that's sort of. Uh, um, the aim uh, that, that we have at Baymart. And I think that's that's how my background have kind of shaped it or a combination of backgrounds have shaped it. Uh, and in terms of tips for uh, starting out with a completely clean shade for a new um, uh, for a new site, I think the main tip is um, not starting to uh, draw up wireframes or not starting to draw up actual designs. Uh, but stepping back even further and say, what is the goal on this page? Uh, what is the goal that we want the user to be able to achieve? Is it that we want them to sign up or do we want to provide some content before we ask them to sign up or before we ask them to buy? Or what is sort of the core purpose? And then when we have that core purpose, then outline what are all of the components just in, on, in, in text what are the main components of this site? Not the footer, that's likely not the main component, but you know, is it a lot of text? Is it a lot of navigation? Uh, sort of outlining those components. And then when you have both the goal and the main uh, content components locked down, then you go into wireframing. I think that's a, just a, a, an absolute incredible piece of advice. I know it sounds, you know, to people listening, I think, I think it probably sounds quite simple, but 
you, you, and I know you know this, there's so many businesses that they don't ask that fundamental question of why. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why are we redesigning the site? Why are we redesigning these pages for these, these journeys and for these types of customers that we need to get a certain body of information into their hands for them to be, able, be comfortable enough to make a purchasing decision? So I think that's a I think it's a really it's a it's a great piece of advice that a lot of businesses would do well to heed and would probably save them a lot of time, money, and pain, and their customers a heck of a lot of pain in the process as well, which is ultimately what we're after, right? All of us are after trying to create. I mean, look, I think if we could create an adaptive one-to-one -one website, and I think that's where personalization is going. I think personalization is rapidly taking us down a path where when a customer is authenticated, we completely change their journey. We completely change the content. We maybe even change the positioning of the content blocks. We may change as much as possible within the realms of the technical limitations to craft that journey on a one-to-one -one basis. But I think so many businesses are so far away from being able to even start down that path because maybe they don't have a CRM, maybe they don't know anything about their customers, or maybe they don't know anything about their products because they don't have product attributes so they can't actually craft that customer journey. So I think taking one step back and saying, okay, before we do personalization, let's actually look at the goal of, of the major pages of our site and is it meeting those goals? Because if it's not, then personalization is just kind of, kind of building on quicksand. And so I think that foundational work is just, just critical. So um, I'm, I'm sure you'd, you'd probably agree with that. Yeah. A lot. I think the, um, um, and that's definitely one of the main trends that we are seeing for e-commerce, uh, that is personalization and not in the sense, also as, as you mentioned here, not personalization in the sense that we used to have it, like it's it's a box that we have at the bottom at, of the home page and the category page and the product pages, which makes, uh, suggest, you know, five different personalized products it's 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 way beyond that it's not thinking of our web page as we have one website no we don't have one website in the future we should have a million websites on the same domain uh, sort of figuratively, figuratively speaking right a million one for every uh, every single user uh, which is uh, likely significantly different and we'll, it will take quite a lot uh, i think the difficult the main obstacle there is that it will. We need to bake in a lot of AI and machine learning into our websites, and that will um, mean that we. It's it's either for those who have very large, very capable technical teams, or we need uh, some 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 very good platforms that can handle this. Your data and your research probably are going to start to be informed. I would imagine by things like, okay, do they use personalization? Because all of a sudden now, this, this quantitative user, user research, it's almost like looking at Google results nowadays. You don't really see raw Google results. It's always through your own filter. And so your job, for example, is going to get harder and harder because the, when you view a website, um, even if you're not authenticated, it's going to start detecting who you are, and so it's going to start adapting. And so therefore, there is no one user experience that you are collecting data about. So I think that's going to pose challenges to you, but it's going to pose great opportunities for the merchants on the other side. So I think you and I are going to have jobs for many years to come. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, and, and completely, uh, completely agree on, on, on that sentiment. Um, it, uh, it's, it is going to be uh, quite interesting to follow, and I guess uh, we can have uh, another talk uh, just in, in a couple of months uh, to see how far we have progressed. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Really appreciate your time.